Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Thomas, one of your hosts for the Generous Business Owner Podcast. We have a special treat for you today, Jim DeBose. Uh, Jim is uh, is an old friend. Uh, we spent some time growing up together in a suburb of St. Louis. You'll hear a little more about that in a minute. But Jim is uh, an amazing engineer and turnaround specialist for manufacturing and operations and uh, worked for a private equity firm for a long time, doing many projects all over the world. He's got a fascinating story, and, and he's, uh, in the last few years, left that job and created a foundation that's fascinating in the way he did it. Uh, you'll really be blessed to hear his story. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jim DeBose. Jeff, thanks for having me. Good to be with you today. Well, it's a real treat. You know, I don't have a long bio. I'm not going to forgive me, Jim, if I don't read a long bio, but, you know, we've known each other a long time. Uh, Jim and I actually grew up in the same suburb of St. Louis. So we've known each other for a, a very long time. He's an engineer by training, had a very successful career working with a, a private equity firm, one of the early pioneers in private equity and in the last few years has retired and, and started a, a very meaningful foundation. I won't feel all your thunder, but but let's start with that. Jim, tell us a little more. I just told him, uh, I gave him a hint about where you grew up, but uh, tell us a little more of what your upbringing was like. Sure, sure. You know, the question, where are you from, always gave me pause to think because I grew up, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Dad was in the beer industry, worked for Coors. And so I grew up until about the middle of seventh grade in, in Denver, in Colorado. And then dad took a job with AB or Anheuser-Busch. Sorry if I'm using St. Louis acronyms there. Right. And we relocated to St. Louis, specifically, uh, specifically Kirkwood, and then had my, I guess you would call them my high school formative years there. And um, Really enjoyed both places, had a real connection to the land in Colorado, and had a real connection to, uh, to the people in, uh, in St. Louis. Not to suggest that the land in, in St. Louis or the people in Denver, you know, wasn't good. Of course it was, but, but those are the things that really stuck with me in, in, in those two, out of, out of those two places for me. Okay, so... Of course, we connected in the uh, Kirkwood locale. And then where does uh, college take you? University of Missouri, Rolla. I, I learned early on that I had a brain that wasn't built for English, <laughs> my home language, right? And it was more numbers-based. And, and so I thought engineering would be great, and I and I and I did enjoy my engineering days. You know, I was a software engineer. In fact, I was I was so early on in software engineering, it was part of the double E department because I really didn't know what to do it. And I I wish I could show you a picture of me telling the kids, you know, about how my first year we still had punch cards and them all getting on their iPhones looking up punch cards because they didn't they had never even <laughs> heard of it, and to see the expression on their face. It was almost like when they were younger and telling them that the internet didn't exist when we were kids and just that 
just watching them try to understand and compute that inside and, their own heads, right? And you could only enter these punch cards into a giant machine in a really cold room. What? Right. Exactly. Kind of sci-fi. Exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. All right, you get out of Rala. Everybody who is from Missouri definitely knows that's an engineering school. Yeah. A very good one. And where's the first job? Yeah, I, I go to work for Boeing and I'm used to saying Boeing now. I, I say, you know, to St. Louis people, I could say McDonnell Douglas. Right. And I'm sure many people who listen to this will know McDonnell Douglas, but some will not. So I, you know, I say Boeing. And, you know, I had I had what I would call, Jeff, one of my more humbling experiences there. And what I mean by that is I think I'm above, you know, I think I'm I think I'm of average intelligence, if not, you know, slightly above. I don't think I'm a genius by any stretch of the imagination, but here's what I'll tell you. I worked with some people who really were unbelievably smart and, and gifted at what they do. And I, I came to the conclusion, that's really a hard conclusion to come to, or it was for me, because it sort of strips you bare, that I could understand a lot of the things and concepts and ideas that these people came up with, but I, I knew almost right away I wasn't going to be that person. My brain just didn't work like that. And so that was a really humbling experience for me. And I learned while at Donald Douglas Bone, when I would go to different, different departments, I spent some time on the flight line to the manufacturing area. I, I, I sort of learned I really liked the manufacturing side of it, the putting together of things. And so from there, I decided to go to WashU or Washington University in St. Louis and pursue my MBA and did so with an operations program. And that, that in general was schooling for me and then got out. Uh, don't want to, don't want to get too far ahead of you here. I don't I'm not sure if this is where you want to go, but, and then, then joined, joined Emerson Electric, which was perfect for me at the time, because it was one of the few firms that really prided itself on its operational excellence. In fact, had a, had a big blue book that I still have on the bookshelf here with me today called a uh, hundred years manufacturing excellence. How did that work out? Emerson? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my gosh, great. And I, I had, I had what I would consider to be, you know, my most influential mentor at Emerson, a guy named John Blank, just a, just an old crusty manufacturing warhorse, right. Who would, who was relentless on me. And I mean that in a good way and just, you know, refused to accept you know, um, mediocrity, right? And he was—he had seen it all, and I—I I drank from that well, or tried to drink. I guess better put, I tried to drink as much as I could from that well. I'll—I'll I'll never, I'll never, you know, uh, consider myself in his league of of operational excellence. But but he certainly inspired. He certainly inspired me, and and. Also importantly, for as much trouble as he gave me, he also did it with a very loving heart because he gave me responsibility at a young age that was based on, I believe, I mean, he's not here with us to, to say, but I believe he would say he gave me responsibility at an age based on my potential rather than my accomplishments. And that takes, boy, that takes bravery as well because you're, putting, you're sort of putting yourself on the line a bit when you do that. At age, I don't know, 28, 29, I had my first plant to run. And um, yeah, really enjoyed that, really learned a ton. 
What do you think it was about the manufacturing process and this idea of operations? I mean, obviously there's engineering connected, right? You're making something, somebody's got to engineer it, somebody's got to improve it, all that. But why do you think you were drawn to the kind of operations side or maybe what about your personality do you think drew you to the operations and manufacturing side? Oh boy, if you start getting into my personality, I don't know how much time you got here, Jeff, but (laughs) you know so much about me and I'll, I'll start off in what might seem like a strange way. The only dream that I really remember recurring dream as a child is I was flying over sand. And when things in life were good, the sand would be smooth, right? And when things would be something other than good, the sand would get wrinkly, for lack of a better or more apt way to put it. And just the manufacturing process, to bring it back around to your question about you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and you do this. There's a lot to that process that Again, well, I, I'm sorry to say this to, to you and your, to your listeners. Welcome to my crazy brain. There's a lot to that about smooth sand, right? And the more efficient you are, the smoother the sand gets. And so for me, that's just the way my mind works. And it's the way I'm built. And I guess you would say that, that that's really what sort of drew me to it. Is my DNA, I think my DNA, just based on who I was and am. It totally makes sense. Like you like processes, not necessarily maybe I'm just picturing, you know, the guy tinkering with the engine to make everything run just right, but maybe a little bit of a pullback to a bigger picture yep. to make sure the yep. process is everybody. But I also think there's a, and we'll get to this later. I know a little bit of a, it seems like you've always enjoyed kind of working with teams. You know what I mean? And, and, For uh, sure. and because that's the only way, obviously, what, what do they say? You, you want to go fast, go by yourself. If you want to go far, go together. But yep. Yep. you've got a complex goal. You've exactly. got to have a team to accomplish it, right? Yep. Well, you know, I've got a, I've got a group of friends back from the Kirkwood days that did Ironman training with. And, and the fact that we trained together and they, they made T-shirts for me at one of my attempts. And yeah, it's, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but you're exactly right. It's, it's to go quickly, you know, go alone, to go far, go together. And, exactly. you know, so many things in my life have been reminiscent or have been instructional for me that teams are better. I mean, just, just go back to that story I told you about Boeing and working with those people who are just, I, I, I just, even to this day, I remain in awe of the things they would, you know, come up with and do. And, you know, when you learn that you're not the smartest person in the room and you accept it and you, and, and I don't mean that like you accept that you're somehow lesser, you just, you just know, you just sort of know where your strengths are, right. You start exactly. to hone that process. And yeah, I want to surround myself with people who are smart with people who are passionate about what they're smart about. And those two things quickly, you know, oftentimes align, right? And, and so as a result, having a team is critical. And then as, you know, as you know, you know, having to deal with, you know, the word turnaround is such an overused word, but, or phrase, but, you know, things that need to be improved, right? Mm -hmm. Boy, if you try to do that all yourself, you know, welcome to a lifetime of frustration, not to mention a, a, a bottle of Tylenol, probably bigger than you. So, Especially if running a plant. I, there's right. no way you could do all that yourself. 
Right. Even if right. you wanted to, it's physically impossible. Okay, so let, let's make this transition now. This is, uh, you know, the Generous Business Owner Podcast. This is, you kind of had a couple of these jobs working for bigger organizations, and suddenly, somehow, you find yourself in a smaller organization that purchases these kind of organizations. Can you talk a little about uh, that transition, how you got into the private equity business? And, and I think this will make sense for people. Yeah, yeah. I met a guy at Emerson who knew a guy. Right. <laughs> guy was Larry Geese. He started Madison Capital. And, and anybody who knows Larry would understand Larry has a passion for building businesses. And I won't even use the word private equity, you know, with regard, because what they do is so much more at, yeah. at Madison. But I, I had the great fortune of listening to what, you know, Larry, you know, was about and wanted to do and buying into that. You know, Larry's a, it's great with the numbers, great finance guy, great, great strategist, really visionary. And at the time, there was another guy who I think was more on the sales side. They needed a dumb operations guy. So, you know, here I am, right? And I, I joined the team. And, you know, helped out with various ventures there and in other places and, you know, was in and out of Madison, you know, a couple of times and, you know, that and did some similar things in other places for other people in terms of, you know, hopefully making things better, hopefully making things more efficient, you know, through time. And, um, yeah, I, I don't. I, so I'm you were sorry, really, I mean, it was basically there, the three of you, right? I mean, Larry had this idea. Well, Larry had the idea, right? And then I think the guy's name was Scott Murray, um, yeah. you know, at the time. And, you know, those guys were the, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pretend something that it's not. I mean, those guys were, those guys were the corporate guys. I, I was out in, I was out in the field being of operational help to, uh, to a business here and there. But I think you were, weren't you, I mean, I don't know if you were counting employees, but I sort of picture the, okay, Larry's got the idea. All right. You got Scott who's selling it. They go kind of run the numbers. At that time, it was single. If you're asking like about, about Madison, at that time, it was single digits. <laughs> and and low single digits. Like right. that way. So yeah. you're, you're yeah. in the first few. And I mean, how many, how many employees does Madison have today, you think, at Ballpark? Oh, boy. If you consider all I the mean, portfolio if you, companies. If you consider all the portfolios, thousands, tens right. of thousands. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I trying to give people a sense. Yeah, that uh, yeah, this it, is very early days, yeah. and this is this is what year roughly did you join them? Boy, let me do the math. 90, 96? 96. Yeah, is, I'm, I'm taking a stab there at it, but it's, it's yeah, about, about that time right, the And then and then you were there for how many years on and off? For oh, you know, in and out for for a couple of years each time, and then go get and then do various things. But I've been associated one way or another through investments. Yeah. You know, for, you know, for double digit years, let's call it. And so, so walk people through, this is so ordinary for you. haven't had a career doing this, but for the normal person on the treadmill going, okay, well, how did this work? So when you would be involved in a deal, you, you got an equity stake, right? In, in whatever deal in you various forms. Like, yeah. In, a in various forms. Yeah. I would agree with that. And plus the some kind of manufacturing business. Well. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry. Yeah. That's, no, you, you know, you had the opportunity for, let's just call it a sweat equity portion. Right. And then you also had the course, the ability to invest in, in various tranches, if you will, you know, investment right. tranches. And you just keep rolling over your money, right? Or trying. And uh, with Madison, Madison, 
didn't lose money. So rolling it over, rolling over was rolling over was a beneficial thing. Or rolling over is not the right phrase, but continuing to invest is is probably the better way to put it. So okay, so let's paint this picture for the folks walking down the street listening to this. They would buy a company for uh, some share of it, right? Was it usually a majority share? Oh yes, by yeah, that that's okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay, I don't, so they, I don't know all of the th- yeah, all yeah. of the goings on in those rooms, but but yes, usually it, a, it, so a controlling holy, interest. Well, bigger than that. I mean, yeah. usually it's usually it's wholly owned. Okay, and then they bring you in because they're trying to buy it for fifty cents and you know make it worth a dollar, and so they bring you in, right? They, they yeah, people plan, like people like me. I mean, they they bring in management teams, right? Right. And, you know, people like me would be, you know, would be part of that process. And typically, you know, I would come from the outside, right? And not, and, and all of these, let's call it ventures that I was in, whether it was Madison or outside of Madison, I was never going to be a long-term player. Right. I was there with a very specific mission and then to, and then to put local management in place or new management in place or modified management, however you want to call it, to fix whatever, help fix whatever, you know, was, was off the rails, if you will, and then move on. So how, what was the average term you think? And I'm sure some are shorter, some are longer. But I yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I've had things that are as short as nine months. I've had things that are as long as five years. Okay. And it's dependent upon a couple of things, right? You know, one, the mission at hand. Number two, you know, if you're enjoying it or if it's a location that right. you're enjoying. And I mean, I've been in many different places and in many different industries. And, and that's, you know, quite frankly, Jeff, that's probably one of the things I enjoyed about it most was just that I got to see so many different industries and be in so many different places. You know, lived, uh, I call it lived overseas a couple of times, but some short stints, you know, overseas, knowing that I was also coming back. And so it was just a, I really feel like I was, I was very fortunate. And and some of these really wonderful and unique experiences, and you know, over the course of, gosh, over the course of it all, I don't know, maybe 12, 15, 18 companies. I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> I someday I'll sit back and count, but um, and that not, I don't mean to to suggest that all of those were with Madison. In fact, many were outside. And how many? I think I think I heard you say this number one time. How many miles on United? Uh, oh, it's American and. America, I guess if you go by the tag that they send you and it says yeah. what, you know, it's, it's I, I think I'm up around seven. Minutes. Yeah. I'm too still trying. I'm, I'm still trying Way to get my first one. So that I think tells a story when I know you were living in Chicago for quite a while and just trying to have a, a life with a family and commuting on a plane Monday to Friday. Right. So I think there's a, a in, lot of people in who, many senses. Yeah. Who can relate to that. So all right, now let's fast forward a few years ago. Uh, you're sort of thinking about, man, I'm not sure I'm going to do another one of these deals. I mean, that just, I wanted to get that mileage number because people know, well, especially these days, uh, what a pain it is to be in an airport. Imagining being in that many airports is uh, pretty staggering. So I think that speaks to, yeah, heck, I take a, a round trip plate in a week and I'm tired. So I, I can't imagine doing all of that. So that could, that's a tough lifestyle. That's a tough lifestyle. And so, okay, talk about how old you are when you're starting to think about kind of yep. hanging some of this up or not re-upping for one more deal. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm 58 now. 
And there's a reason why when I started talking about where I was from, where I made mention, because I figured this would probably wrap back, that in Colorado, the thing I really attached myself to was the land, the mountains. And I promise I'll, I'll answer your question. I'll, I'll get around to it probably an oddball way. Oh, you are. You know, yeah. you, you know me. Now I tangent around for a while. Um, I really felt disconnected and I just didn't know what from. And as I started to really go through some self evaluation, especially as it relates to happiness and joy, and as we've talked about, happiness and joy are two very different things, I came to the understanding that at least at that time, and I've come to understand it better, but I just, I was, I wasn't spending the time outdoors that I used to and connecting to the land, or as John Muir would put it, getting into the mountain, getting into the mountains to get the news. And because for me growing up, that was so impactful. And it's just a place of calmness and serenity and reflection and gratitude. And the sand got smooth again because sand, you know, there are a couple of times in life where the sand wasn't smooth for many different reasons. And we won't get into all those yeah. on this call, but, but you can control what you can control. And I needed more smooth sand in my life and finding my way back to that connection to the land and the ability to spend time in it and with it. And then questioning and then once the stand got smoother about how to drive, how to, how to make it even smoother, right? The same kind of efficiency kind of process that you do, but this time with your own life. And, you know, Jeff, you and I have talked about this thing called S-curves. And S-curves, like, take any product cycle, right? Introduction starts off slow, and then it ramps up, right? And then it, then it gets to maturity, and it, and it peters off, right? And people, I think, are very familiar with that in terms of products. And you, you and I have said to each other, why don't we look at our lives like that more often? And why don't, even more importantly, right, for us as at, at our age, why don't we encourage our children and other people that, you know, you know, may pay, you know, we may have some influence with, why don't we encourage them to look at their lives more like that? And so I was going through this process of, you know, trying to look at my life in, in terms of an S-curve and wanting to jump on another one, right? And I just wasn't, and if any of this comes out as me trying to bash capitalism, nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, providing jobs, making sure companies are healthy, giving to the community, all of that, you know, capitalism does all of that and makes a lot of that possible, right? But for me, you know, I, I, I just wasn't getting the same value out of what I was doing that I was, you know, earlier. And, and, and maybe the best way to put it, Jeff, is when I was younger, I thought, oh man, if I could just be the president of a company, or CEO, or this or that, and I had a fatter bank account or this or that, right? Life would be perfect. And I got some of that stuff as time went on. And guess what? Life was not perfect. And it causes, you know, and, and one could argue that it makes your life even in some ways, you know, more unperfect. And I really tried to unpack that for myself. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that I'm done unpacking it. Um, in fact, that's one of the coolest things about my journey is that I'm learning at age 58. Man, there's still so much to learn, still so much to do, and so many new journeys to take. But 
I wasn't getting as much value out of improving a P&L by a tenth of a percent or whatever the case became, you know, towards the end of it that I used to. And I wanted to, I wanted to find something again that connected me to, to the value I was, uh, I was trying to provide my own life. It totally makes sense. It feels like you were just being drawn to something else, right? Uh, Being drawn to something else. So a lot of this is not so much running from anything as it is to being drawn to something else, which I think, I mean, I, I know so many business owners struggle with. They're like, okay, if I sell this, if I move on, if I hang it up, what am I going to do? You know, so trying to create that next, maybe an S-curve, you've been doing these S-curves in business. Okay, but for your own life, what does that S-curve look like? And I know there's an organization, Halftime, that we've had a few guests on about that that's what they actually draw an S-curve for your life and then add an S-curve on top. So if it starts rolling over, you know, do some things to try to figure out what goes next. So you've kind of hinted at this. Now, how, you know, 58 now. How long ago was it when you really stopped doing your last deal operationally? Years ago now? About three, right. Yep. So it's still early, I would say. I mean, I still, yeah, it's still I, early in that journey. Um, but you did a very uh, unique thing. And I've had the uh, benefit of uh, being on your advisory board for your foundation. But maybe you could explain to folks, this is fascinating to me, um, how you set up your foundation. Well, I mean, first, let me say, you know, I, I wish I had your power of articulation, Jeff, because I could have I could have summed up exactly what, what my babbling before by saying exactly what you just hinted at. I was I wasn't running from something. I enjoyed my time working, but I was running towards something else. Yes. And uh, yeah, you know, Whitman's This Is What You Shall Do is a really powerful piece and it just blows me away you know for anybody who doesn't know you know whitman's masterwork called leaves of grass written in 1855 you know has this preface and on page at least in my copy on page 35 of that preface buried in the middle of a paragraph there's this what's become known as a poem and the poem's title is this is what you shall do and i you know i'll let i'll let Anybody who's interested, obviously, can take a look at it. But it's a, you know, it's it's an interesting instructional or advisory on how to live a life. And I don't I don't mean that to sound like I've lived anything close to a perfect life, but it's very aspirational, and it connects the land, and it connects the people, and it connects it connects so many different things. And so I thought, would, really, wouldn't it be neat to set up something? In this case, it ended up being a foundation that that tried to aspirationally pursue these causes and to do so for the benefit of of the land and for other people and the animals that occupy it. And yeah, I I didn't know it was a foundation at first, just sort of got there by happenstance. And then to your point about how I set up an advisory board, (laughs) back to that, again, I, I hate to come back to the same example, back to that Boeing example, Exactly, man. I wanted I wanted people around me who knew some stuff, and so the tenets of the the tenets of the foundation are conservation, education, and opportunity democratization. So let's just call it conservation, education, opportunity. And you know, Chris Andrew, a guy who got running the day to day side of it. You know, he and I spent a lot of time up front saying, okay, if we had these lanes of expertise that we lack, what are they? And we identified them, and 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 one of which was was your lane, that of faith, 
And so we sort of searched our lives for people that spoke to us as being a heck of a lot more experts in those areas than we were. And again, going back to why I said about St. Louis that I connected with the people, there's what, nine advisory board members, five of them are from Wood Days. What does that say? I think that says that, uh, at least to me, what it says is that the value set of the Kirkwood community was pretty solid, pretty solid people. If you look back to those days, you know, for that for that kind of advice. And it's really sort of been an open door. I mean, this thing's been you were there for the first meeting. And, you know, we sort of we sort of tell you what's going on on a quarterly basis. And we get some advice from you guys along the way. that's been, you know, helpful is not strong enough of a word. And because you start off like with any new thing, right? Drinking from the fire hose. And then then the fire hose becomes more manageable. But man, you you guys have all been in your various ways so incredibly helpful. And I hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. Well, I mean, I know you think, I always tell you this, but I know you think this is just normal and ordinary what you've done. But you know, we literally deal with people having liquidity events who want to be generous. Okay, that's that's you know, big reason. This is my passion. I've never seen it anybody else do it exactly the way you did it. And I it, the way I think about it is I love your S-curve discussion because you're in these businesses where you're trying to help these businesses perform an S-curve. And then I like this idea of you're translating this knowledge you have of the S-curve and, and that to your personal life. Okay, now how do I make sure my personal life is kind of up and to the right? And you talked about, we talked about the need for a team to if you have, you know, a big plan, a big Boeing, a big Boeing plant or Emerson plant or any of the companies you're involved in with turnarounds, I mean, it's a big goal that takes a team of specialists aligned around a goal. And that's what you've done with the foundation is align it around the goal. A lot of it's about supporting the national parks and these sort of things. I know it's going to expand beyond that, but a, a group of aligned experts rowing in that same direction. And so what we often see is, and there's nothing wrong with this model, it's just different. But what most people do is they work in these large environments where they sell the company, they had a big team at work, and then in their foundation at home or in their giving after they sell the company, it's usually they don't sub- subject themselves <laughs> to the opinions of 10 other people, <laughs> okay? So... And I know there's an executive board and advisory board, and I'm being a little nerdy about it just because I think our listeners are are pretty advanced on, on this philanthropic piece. So maybe you could talk a little about the separation of the executive board and the advisory board, and then why you're so open to taking feedback. When really, I mean, arguably, you know, look, you made the money, you could decide by yourself or, or with your wife where the money goes, you know. Why do you subject yourself to these other folks? You know, the, the listeners to this podcast are probably going to ask themselves the following question. Why, why won't he directly answer any question? I go in to start with some tangent, but an important point, you know, for, for me and for Kate was we had a home in Evanston that had, I mean, basically needed to be rebuilt, had a disaster hit during the, uh, the vortex for anybody who remembers that. But anyway, and so, Service masters came in, they packed up the entire house. And we're talking about, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way, but we're talking about like a six-bedroom house, lots of stuff in it. A lot of stuff. And a lot of stuff, right? And I feel like that's one thing that just is a really big lie that, you know, 
society teaches you need a lot of stuff. You don't. Anyway, so they packed stuff away. They rebuilt the house, blah, blah, blah. Two, goes, go by two years and the time to deliver it back. We're like, no, let's come out. Kate and I are going to go inspect stuff and see what we need. And I think there were like 21 giant size, you know, containers of stuff, right? And we went through it and you know what we needed? We needed like one and a half of those containers of stuff that we were going to take with us to our new life in Tucson. And it really was a, it was really a powerful moment for us because you just don't need a lot of stuff. And that involves, you know, that, that is also with regard to money, you just, you don't need as much as you think you need, when you certainly don't need as much as maybe you want. And to your question, I'll, I'll get back to your question now with that yeah. backdrop said, you know, we really want to build something that lasts well beyond our time here. And, and, you know, perpetuity is something we talk about all the time. And one of the ways you get there, right, is that you, you just size up sort of what you need during your time and then, you know, pass it on, if you will. Yeah. And that's really what we're trying to do. And we're trying to do it in the best way that we know. And, you know, I just need, you know, I know my brain going back to the Boeing days, right? I'm not going to solve all the problems or all the issues with trying to build this thing. And that's why I want all these opinions. In. And, and I, I also really love the different lens that everyone gives through their lane because it's, it's just, it always provides me with a really interesting way to think of things and some really interesting and powerful, powerful moments of reflection. And I think, you know, to the degree that I have any wisdom, that small amount that I have, you know, comes to me through these kind of moments of reflection and these, these lenses and these, these opinions of others. And it's just always been important. Well, I, I just think one of the things that we're always encouraging folks to do as they're selling their companies or, or leaving whatever they're doing and getting into this new thing. I mean, I, I just love this idea of listening and getting a new vision of where, you know, I would say God is trying to take you, you know, and then applying. Sometimes we forget that some of these skills that we've developed at work actually apply to the next phase. So like, I love this idea of like, you've got a really big goal with how to support the parks and do all these things. Okay. But that's a big vision that's going to outlast you. You, by definition, need an aligned team that's going to outlast you, but you have to have a strategy, but it's not unlike what you always did at work. I mean, you already have that muscle. Just exercise the strategy brain and, and techniques with an, with an aligned team. And I think sometimes we see people just sort of lay down all of their work skills and maybe not apply them so much later or try to find a way. So I just love the model you've got of how it, and I think you've done it. I don't, I don't think you sat around going, well, how do I apply my work muscle to my, you just sort of did it organically. But I think that's such a lesson for people who are trying to think, okay, there's somebody walking down the street or at the gym listening to this and they're going, you know, I'm not sure. I, I feel like I'm called to X. Okay. X for you is nature all of this sort of thing, uh, supporting those sort of things. But for them, it's, maybe it's a different thing, 
but they're going, man, I'm nervous about leaving this thing that I know, this business. And it's kind of my, you know, I think we all, if we're honest, probably put a little too much of our, uh, you know, uh, get a little too much of our own self-esteem from our job. I know, I know I'm certainly guilty of that. So you sort of lay that down where you're important at work. Well, now who are you going to be? Okay. So, you know, we always try to close these podcasts with kind of a, uh, just like a practical tip because we're just business people to business people. This isn't some, you know, professional uh, podcast or media person. We're just a bunch of business people talking to other business people who are, who want to be down this generosity trail. And you might be just a little further down the trail. And I'm, I'm especially thinking of like the person's kind of in your shoes, maybe five years ago going, am I really going to do this? What is maybe that one practical tip that they could think about as they try to think about that transition? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question that I'm still trying to, you know, fully answer for myself, but I, I would tell you, um, I would tell you that, that it's, it's somewhere in the realm of an article that I read recently said I'm retired now and I'm a nobody now and it's not so bad. And you take that and you align it with this idea of, at least in my mind, of S curves and just spend some very purposeful, dedicated time to thinking about, man, what, what was it that really you know, got your juices flowing at 23. And I'm not talking about like the really tangible things. I'm talking not, about not, like not the stuff inside, yeah. not the material things, right? Or the things associated with the title or this or that. But I mean, pretend like you're a kid again. And whatever that is, raise yourself up in it. And I'm sorry to, you know, do another tangent on you, but I was, in, I was on a hike with Kate. And you know, Jeff, your callers don't, but she's, she's like 53 times smarter than I am. And we're on like a, <laughs> poor Kate, we're on like an eight mile hike. And I'm, I'm going through some of these very thoughts, right? And she's like, and she listens to me for eight miles, right? Waxing on. And at the end of it, she sums it up for me perfectly. And it's sort of like you did with the running, uh, not running from something, but running towards something you know, idea. And she said, you know, you're a kid and you get raised up, right? And then you have your own kids and then you raise them. And now at this stage, you get to raise yourself. And that really, I don't know if that'll be helpful to anybody else, but that really struck me in that, man, this is in your control. And you, for the first time in your life, you know, maybe, you know, you know, your parents decided a lot for you growing up. And then once you have kids, man, they decide a lot for you, right? Because they just drive your life. And they, I mean, not all in a good way. But you've got this magical moment, man, where you get to raise yourself and you get to be in control of that journey. So find your S-curve. I, I, I don't know any other. Have me back in, in 10 years, God willing. And maybe I'll be able to articulate a lot of this stuff better, Jeff, but that's, that's what I'd say. No, I love it. I, I think this idea, I think we all get on this treadmill sometimes, you know, where, and, and I think a lot of people were 
are as as they're walking down the street listening to this kind of on this treadmill and they're feeling called to something new and different. And I think to really get clear and have the confidence to step out and go to that thing, spending those times thinking, praying about your passions and, and finding that thing, you have to really spend some time and figure out what it is you want to run toward. I think that's great advice. So well, let's wrap it up there. It's been a pleasure, Jim, to have you on. Thanks for being on the Generous Business Owner Podcast. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. Really, really enjoyed the time. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.